Due to some technical complications, we were unable to record the first few minutes of the sermon. We apologize for the inconvenience, but hope that you enjoy the rest of the message. We've seen Jesus' seven signs. So these are seven miracles where, where he's revealed his love for those who suffer, his identity as the Son of God, and his holy rebellion against the evils of empire. And to back that up, after the, after the resurrection of Lazarus, that story is immediately followed by a meeting of the chief priests and the Pharisees, who say, they, they say that Jesus, they, well, they see that he's a threat to their place of political power, and so they seek to eliminate him. In the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is anointed for his burial by Mary, and he enters into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, as a king, but perhaps not the king that we might expect. But what really precipitates Jesus' final conversations with his disciples is verse 20. Greeks, likely, likely converts, come up to the feast. They've heard about Jesus, and they ask about him. And so at this point, Jesus utters the words of verse 23. Y'all are going to have to forgive me because I'm going to spend a little time with verses 23 to 26. But it's, it's meaty stuff. In verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In his first sign, turning water into wine at Cana to extend a wedding party when Mary initially told him that there was no wine. His response was that his time had not come yet. But now, now the time has come. But according to Jesus, what, what is his glorification? What's he, what's he talking about? See, so generally when, when, when we think about glory, we think about positive attention. We think about the come up. We think about, I've been, I've been working all my life for this, grind and grind and grind. I'm ready for glory, for attention. For riches, for clout, for fame, like this is what I want. And Jesus does everything that he does to die. Verse 24 and 25. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man, the man or woman who loves his life will lose it, while the person who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We're going to have to sit in that for just a second. Jesus repeats a lot of things, and this is actually one of them. It shows up in all four of the Gospels. It's, it's really striking in Luke, uh, chapter 14, verse 26 to 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Common thing. Hate your life. But what does that mean? Does it just mean to be content with little? Does it, does it, is it, is it, is it calling us to some kind of masochistic depression where we, where we walk around whipping ourselves to show the world that we're miserable for Christ? It's our new mosaic t-shirt. Mosaic. <laughs> no. Here's what Jesus is saying. And we got a slide up. A life lived in light of the gospel a life lived as a citizen of the kingdom of God is a life of wholehearted devotion to a counter logic to the kingdoms of the world. Let me say that one more time. A life lived in light of the gospel, the evangelion, the, the good news that the king of the kingdom of heaven has come, is a life lived in wholehearted devotion to a counter logic to the kingdoms of the world. See, the, the love-hate language is what's called a Semitic idiom. Semitic dealing with the languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and others. 
It's an idiom. It's a, it's a fork of a language, as an example. English idioms. Things like, it's a piece of cake. Or referring to your haters as salty. <laughs> you, don't, you don't literally think that this easy thing that you just did like, is an actual delicious piece of cake. And hopefully you're not making a statement about how your haters taste. Like, that's, that's weird. <laughs> Similarly, Jesus is not saying hate your family in the sense of, like, actively work for their harm. He's not, he's not saying hate your life in the sense of being miserable. What he's saying is that the life in the kingdom doesn't look like life in the world. And so a commitment to Jesus is going to put you at odds with the world. See, I've been, I've been floored in the, in the past few weeks, brothers and sisters, with some, with some realizations that have rocked me to the core. So I've been, I've been drinking deeply from Christian sources who have reminded me that Christ and the apostles' call to us is not to ingratiate ourselves to the halls of power, nor is it to feed into the idolatry of money that we see around us. Pierre Burton said it, said it this way back in 1965. He says this, It has all but been forgotten that Christianity began as a revolutionary religion whose followers embraced an entirely different set of values from those held by other members of society. Those original values are still in conflict with the values of contemporary society. And yet religion today has become as conservative a force as the force the original Christians were in conflict with. Woo! I got one job, y'all. And that job is to prep you for the revolution that Jesus started. It starts with hating your life in this world so that you can keep your life unto the age. Whenever you see the phrase eternal life, that's what we're talking about. As, as Christians, we believe that everybody's going to live forever. The question is just whether you live forever in Christ or under eternal judgment. Former is much better. But not only that, but the eternal life that Jesus is talking about is something that you can experience now. And what does that look like? Well, Jesus says in verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. This is a mind-blowing verse. This is an idea that's central to each of the four Gospels, that following, that following Christ requires sacrifice. But the question that's in our minds is like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Or more specifically, what does it mean to be where Jesus is? That's the question, and if we ask it like that, Jesus has an answer. At the end of Matthew 25, which time-wise is actually around the time of Lazarus' razor, it's the, it's, the, it's the end of Jesus' public ministry in Matthew, this is the last thing that he says. He's talking about his return, and his judgment of the nation, separating the sheep from the goats. And the question is, who are the sheep of his pasture? Those to whom he gives the kingdom prepared for them from the creation of the world. Well... Verses 35 and 36, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous respond that they never saw Jesus in any of those situations. And Jesus responds that when you did it for the least of those, his brothers and sisters, you did it for him. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that Jesus is among the poor, period. Jesus is among the marginalized. Jesus is among the, the oppressed. And the church that fails to be found in that place fails to live in union with that Jesus. As a matter of fact, the so-called Christian who fails to be found among the poor fails to live a life in union with Christ. And that's a difficult word for me to say, but, 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 but I can't not say it. Like This is what the entirety of the scriptures are about if we read it right. Because if we read it right, then we'll see a people, I mean, most of the scriptures are written 
by people under imperial rule. They're oppressed. And giving and, and, and writing about the God who has promised to set them free. That's what Jesus is getting at. And if we follow him, then that's where our footsteps are going to lead. Let's make it even more uncomfortable. I want to break it down. Because I want us to see why this is why this is so hard for many of us. What is the dominant worldly institution in each and every one of our lives? The answer is the economy. Brilliant Yale theologian Catherine Tanner said it this way in an interview that the economy is the dominant force in people's lives, that the terminology of the economy has bled into everything that we think and do. And so Jesus came after folks' idolatry in their wallets, so we got to do the same. I messed with Slim about this. So, so American Christians uh, love, to, love to talk about the culture and engagement with the culture. And it often ends up being like this non-specific thing that really just translates to particular political positions. But here's, but here's, our, but here's our issue. We are actively being shaped by our economic culture and system. Here's an example. How hard is it for you to take a 24-hour Sabbath? 24 hours, no work, no work emails, no thinking about work, no living in such a way that requires others to work. Just, just spending time with family, friends, food, and worship. Imagine what that might mean for you to like, actually do that. Imagine what you would need to do in order to be able to do that. Now think about somebody who, 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 who can't, can't afford to do that. Think about, some, think, think about someone where they're, they're, they, you, because, of, because of the way that this is set up, they have to work in order to eat. They can't do this. Think about, think about what it means. You, you can think about how hard that might be for you, but think about the fact that, and that, that a capitalistic economy has discipled us into thinking that when we're not working, we're not being productive. And if we're not being productive, we have no use. That's what the logic of the world says. The logic of the kingdom is rooted in the fact that everything we have is a gift from it is a gift from the Lord, and He actually runs it all. And so I can't take 24 hours off because if I if I'm, if I'm saying that I can't, what I'm saying is I'm busier than God who rested on the seventh day. That's a me problem. As I, I got to deal with that, and then I could so like there's a, like there's a litany of specifics that we could get into, but I but I, I want us to really think about our economic interactions. Our lives are built in ways that keep us from thinking about the ways our actions affect our neighbors. Our lives are built in such ways that, 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 that encourage us to forget the poor, to forget those, are, those who are aging, to forget the suffering. It's built in ways to encourage us to think about poverty as, a, as exclusively individual moral failure as opposed to widespread systemic failure. So then what does solidarity look like? Walking with the marginalized in their pain requires suffering. Mourning with our Asian brothers and sisters in the face of violence and exclusion hurts. But it also opens us up to new joys when, when we really bear one another's burdens and seek to alleviate one another's needs. Walking alongside and loving our poor brothers and sisters may seem inconvenient to the middle class, upper middle, or upper class Christian. But it is necessarily what Christ-likeness looks like. And joyfully so. That's the way of life propped up by the logic of the kingdom of God. And so the result, according to Jesus, is not just you feeling better about yourself. The result
honor him. That is, when you align yourself with the poor and the marginalized, the world is not going to support you, but the Father will. God will honor you. God will fill you. My dad reminds me of, of, of Proverbs 19.17, which is an absolutely ridiculous verse. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's like memorized the entire book and reads through the books of it. It says this, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. When you pour yourself out for the poor and the oppressed, you place God in your debt. A lot of people, prosperity, there are people like love saying that like you do particular things and like God has to repay you or whatever. This is what the scripture says. When you give to the poor, you place God in your debt. It sounds weird. We're not used to that kind of language. But that's what the text says. It's saying that God is in your, God is in your debt because he identifies that much with the suffering. That is a much better return. We get a much better return on that investment than the best that finance-dominated capitalism can offer. Billionaire Bill Ackman bet on Netflix a while ago. Netflix is at, 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 like, a, at like a historic low right now. He lost $400 million betting on Netflix. Lost $400 million. The call. 
all that Jesus is trumpeting in this last public address before he focuses on preparing the twelve to lose their rabbi, as well as to prepare for what life post-resurrection is going to be. Jesus is saying that life in the kingdom, following Christ, is a life of exaltation through death. The declarations in these verses are powerful. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time for, for, the, for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. This is what victory looks like. The definitive event in the Christian faith is the death of Jesus Christ. A death that was not the natural consequence of a peaceful life. Something I'm sure many of us aspire to. But that's not the way our Savior died. It's like it's like uh, it's, it's like it's like when people talk about like what what Martin Luther King died for. Like he was killed. He didn't choose to die. He was killed. Now Jesus is different. Like Jesus did, did like both of these things are true. That Jesus came to die, but he was killed. Like death didn't just kind of happen upon him. He was killed by the powers, rulers, and principalities because he lived a fully human life in full communion with God, and in full solidarity with the poor, preaching and healing, evangelizing and doing mercy. Because he lived a life which, as I said on Easter, and I'm going to say this more often, he lived a life that was a substantive, nonviolent threat to empire. And here's the thing. If it's true, as Rene Padilla says, that in, talk, in talking about what he calls the mission integral, that evangelism and social action are two wings of the plane of the gospel, then that's a plane that takes us to the same destination that Jesus was on the way to. Jesus would say this elsewhere to the, to the disciples. It's great to also like do this on like the days you're sending out graduates, because it's like Jesus sending out the disciples. It's, it's a really inspiring message, too. Um, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the, to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Here's the fun part. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. If it, it, it is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house, Jesus, has been called Beelzebul, meaning the prince of demons, how much more the members of his household? So if the Son of God, a few chapters ago, the, 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 the religious leaders called Jesus a, a demon-possessed Samaritan. If they're going to call Jesus a demon-possessed Samaritan, we're going, to be, we're, going to be, we're going to have to handle the names that we're going to be called when we emphasize that serving the poor and the marginalized is not an addition to the gospel, but integral to the declaration that the kingdom of God is near. If they called him the prince of demons, Beelzebul, I'm not going to lose any sleep over the names that people may call us, whether it's Marxist, social justice, or whatever. For being obedient to Christ, that's what matters. Being like Jesus and treating others as he did exposes us to being treated like he was. Union with Christ doesn't just include his benefits, it also includes his sufferings. Because this isn't about names, this is about the fact that if we get serious about this, brothers and sisters, we're going on a path that is well-worn by our Savior, and by the saints. And it doesn't end in exaltation in the eyes of the world. It's not a path that ends in a glitzy 10,000 seat auditorium with smoke machines and CCM artists doing massive concerts. 
It's not a path that ends in me and Slim getting brand deals with clothing companies that we then post on Instagram to show how much the Lord has blessed us. It's a path that ends in death. Bonhoeffer says it this way. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old, of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But that death, dear brothers and sisters, the death that repentance is, the death that shifting our priorities is, the death that persecution is, the death of your old man or old woman is not your ultimate death. It's not the death of your person. It's a restoration of your true humanity. A sloughing off of your corruption. It's, it's your call to a new life. The life of which you can only imagine. Jesus is asking us to give up the old in order to experience and enjoy the new. Eternal life. A life suffused with the Spirit. A life that's filled with the love of God and the love of His people. See, Jesus said that if you love your life in this world, you'll lose it because you will. It's fleeting and it's going to draw you away from the Savior who died for you. But if you repent and believe in the gospel, that is, if you live a life of repentance and rest and receive that the kingdom of God is near, that Christ has pulled you in, eternal life awaits. A life where you're called into a covenantal community, the church that functions as the most powerful outpost in the world, an outpost of the coming kingdom of God, an outpost that operates by a logic that's counter to the logic of empire, domination, and exploitation. The church, a body of believers who recognizes with, with the poor and oppressed dependent scriptures that the God of the Bible is a God of the oppressed and of the suffering, and that if we claim this God, and if we claim to follow this Jesus, then we've got to be found where he is. A community where, by the power of the Spirit and in obedience to Christ, instead of all of us looking to our own interests and perpetuating the rampant inequality that we see in the world because of unchecked self-interest, we see people looking to one another's interests, resulting in an alternative community without need. When the Lord speaks of Jubilee, in Deuteronomy 15, people love quoting uh, Jesus in chapter 12 of John, when he says that, you know, you'll always have the poor among you. He'll say that like, oh, that means that we shouldn't engage in like radical work to do away with poverty. Well, uh, when the Lord speaks of Jubilee in Deuteronomy 15, he tells the people of God that there need be no poor people among you. We ought to say the same of our communities, not because we have kept the poor out, which is the way that a lot of people end up functioning. But because we have in solidarity invited folks in and fulfilled their needs, that's the vision, dear brothers and dear sisters. Because that is the work that Christ is calling us to do. That's the work that God is calling and equipping us for. That's what, that's what gospel, good news, 
means. It's that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. By his death, he took your sin upon himself and he wiped the slate clean. By his death, he paid your ransom. By his death, he defeated the powers, the rulers, the principalities that you fight, that he defeated death, that he defeated sin, that he defeated the corruption of the cosmos, and that he's coming back to finish the job, to fully glorify the Father, to come back for a people, a people that God has formed and a people that God has wanted from the very beginning, a people who reflect his priorities in their midst and in the world. That's what we offer as heralds of the gospel. And the Son of God places it before us. He says, will you believe in this gospel? Was handed down to us by the prophets, by the Son of God, by the apostles. Or will you settle for a lesser gospel? A lesser gospel that may demand less of you. A lesser gospel that may allow you to continue life as you always have. A lesser gospel that may tell you, hey, like, I mean, you might lose a little, but you're not going to die. A lesser gospel that may tell you, care for the poor? Nah, that's political stuff. We don't do that. I can't say this strongly enough. The Son of God will have none of it. His call is stark. If we want true life, eternal life, it can only be found in Him, and He's given us guidance as to what that looks like. He told us where He is. It's time for us to go there. I have no prayer deeper than my prayer for each of us that we would receive that life so that we can walk hand in hand toward the new heavens and new earth. John 12 is the end of Jesus' public ministry. But it's not the end of his work. His exaltation begins at his death, but it continues through his resurrection, his exaltation, and ultimately his return. So also, if we're united with him, we're also going to be exalted. If we humble ourselves in union with the one who took on flesh. Brothers and sisters, the call is for us to be citizens of that kingdom. Let's pray.